Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to Psychic Teachers. I'm your host, Samantha Fay, And I'm Deb Bowen. And today we're going to take a deeper dive into the ancient art, or science of alchemy. What is it? What did it mean in the ancient world? And what does it mean to us today? I love to talk about alchemy, Deb, because I think I think so much of what we discuss on this show, whether it's intuition and psychic development or manifesting and magic, really does have elements of alchemy rolled into it. Oh, I think everything's alchemy. And this is a gal who only managed to get through chemistry by the grace of a very kind high school chemistry teacher. So there you go. Well, let's talk about what it was historically. There were two basic concepts that described the intent of alchemy. One was that the alchemists wanted to turn base metal, like lead, for example, into gold. And the second was that the alchemists wanted to discover or create and then use an elixir that would make him immortal. I mean, those are two pretty amazing things. Absolutely, they are. And before we take a deep dive into those concepts, there's a third definition of alchemy and its intent that might be closer to the truth, at least for us today. But before we get there, let's talk about this history. So according to the Royal Society of Chemistry, the art of alchemy was passed through centuries from Egypt and Arabia to Greece and Rome and then to Central and Western Europe. The word alchemy comes to us from the Arabic word alchemia, A-L hyphen A-I-M-I-A, which is related to the ancient Egyptian preparation of what we now call the stone of elixir. The root kamiya comes from the Coptic hem, A-H-E-M, which is related to the fertile black earth of the Nile River Delta. So when we dig into this word further, we find that hieroglyphically, the word chem describes the dark mystery of what is called first matter or the very beginnings of creation. So basically, we have a, a transliteration of a phrase or a word that morphed and moved from one culture to another with the idea ultimately of being some mysterious way to prepare a philosopher's stone, or an elixir of eternal life. And somehow or another, that term goes back even further into the into the world of the Coptics and connection to the earth itself. 
that fertile land that is the Nile River Delta, where so much food has come from. They call it first matter. Interestingly, I found this just fascinating when I started to dig into alchemy. One of the earliest known alchemists was a woman, and she was known as Mary or Maria the Jewess. Mary the prophetess, Maria the Copt, as in Coptic Gospels, and she lived sometime between the first and third centuries AD in Alexandria. She's considered by some historians to be the first true alchemist in the Western world. She invented several kinds of chemical apparatus and wrote extensively on the alchemical process. One of her theories was that metals have a body, soul, spirit, and gender attributes, and that by combining certain male and female metals, new metals, new entities could be made. Her work has been chronicled by historians in the 4th, 8th, and 10th centuries by Arabic, Byzantine, and Greek historians. So I just find this fascinating that, that here was this woman who was considered to be a prophet, who was connected to uh, the Coptic sect in Egypt, who was Jewish in Alexandria, did all of this amazing scientific, basically scientific work. One of her principles, which has become known as the Axiom of Maria, became a guide for early alchemists. And here's what it says. Now, bear with me because... Just hang on here. Her axiom says, one becomes two, two becomes three, and out of the third comes the one as the fourth. Now, I don't think I could do any chemistry with that sentence, but Carl Jung could. Of course he could. <laughs> I'm already confused by what you just said. Yeah, I was too, but but, but bear with me here. I think we're going to make it make sense, or at least Carl Jung's going to make it make sense. So Jung and his associate, Marie-Louise von Franz, created an alternative version of Maria's axiom that says, out of the one comes two, out of the two comes three, and from the third comes the one is the fourth. All right, that I get. Okay, I knew you would. It was these concepts that Jung used as the philosophical basis of his theory of individuation. So here's here's the cool thing about this. And, and I'll talk more about Carl Jung in a minute, but he was so fascinated by uh, alchemy and, and magic and tarot and lots of other things that in his work as a psychologist, he, he could see the connection among all of these pieces to the puzzle, including mythology. That's a whole other uh, episode. But, but he could understand how the notion of this desire to create something from nothing really became a part of who we are in terms of our philosophical and psychological makeup, which I just think was fascinating. He he had on his property when he got older and, and built a, a home that he really wanted, he built a tower and up at the top of that tower was where he did all sorts of experiments and lots of a fascinating research. But back to Mary, because here's an interesting piece of trivia about her. She invented something that became known, a chemical piece of apparatus, 
called a Bain, B-A-I-N hyphen Marie, or Mary's bath. It is a contraption. This is how it's described. It is a contraption that limits the temperature of a container and its contents by exposing the container to a separate liquid heated to the boiling point, which provides a gentle heat for the substance being heated. Today, we call that Bain Marie a double boiler. That's how I melt chocolate. That's right. Exactly. We need to think of another alchemist that most of us don't think of as being an alchemist, but rather as one of the founding fathers of much of today's modern science, Sir Isaac Newton. But I think of him as about falling apples and prisms and refractions of light. When I think of Sir Isaac Newton, I think of the cover of Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon album. Of course you do. Of course I do. But... It is estimated that one million of the 10 million words he wrote in his research and personal and professional papers were about alchemy. He apparently felt he needed to be secretive about some of his thoughts and works on this topic because he mixed his alchemical knowledge with philosophy and allegory and flowery image so as to keep himself from being labeled a heretic. In 2020, Two unpublished pages of Newton's notes on Jean-Baptiste Van Helmont's book on the plague in the 1600s were being auctioned by a famous auction house, Bonhams. And in those pages, Newton suggests that the best therapy for the plague begins with a dead toad. Too much for this episode, but suffice it to say it's not a cure I'd want to try. Why? Well, now I, now I want to know. What do you have to do with the dead toad? There was a lot of stuff that it, I started reading it, and I thought, mm, I can't talk about this. This is too weird. Did it involve a double broiler? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so, but but he he really was working with some interesting stuff that we would not think of for Newton and all of his science, you know? So over time, alchemists of the Middle Ages wanted to find the Philosopher's Stone which is also called the stone of knowledge. There was this there was this idea that there was this one particular rock made of some kind of metals, some kind of stones that would give the owner of the rock the ability to live eternally, to learn everything they needed to know and to be able to work with some way to transmute metals into gold. One of the interesting things about that, that process of turning things into gold that I did not know was that most alchemists of the Middle Ages believed that all metals were the same substance. There was just one substance in varying degrees of that substance, with gold being the most pure and silver being the second. So what they felt they could do is if they could, could take a, a piece of metal and in some way, take away the impure metals, what would be left would be pure gold or maybe some gold and silver. That's what they were hoping that they would be able to find. Wasn't the Philosopher's Stone also connected to immortality in some legends? Well, yes, it was. And so was the notion of the elixir. So it's kind of both, both that whatever that liquid elixir is, and the Philosopher's Stone or the 
stone of knowledge. Okay. Which would you prefer finding a magical stone that turns lead into gold or finding a magical stone that makes you immortal? I'm not sure I want either of them. I think they'd both be more trouble than they're worth. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, if you had a, if you had lead into gold, if you had that magical stone, you could do a lot of good in the world. You could, this is true. Now, the immortality one, I had a little esoteric crisis as a kid when I was watching Bewitched. I loved that show, and I wanted to be Bewitched until there was one episode where it talked about how she was immortal and Darren was not, and how one day he would grow old and she would still be young. And I remember being a little girl and thinking, oh, that's I I couldn't wrap my head around that. And so I wouldn't want to be immortal unless my loved ones could be too. No, I I don't think so. I think... As I have gotten older, I have come more to appreciate the idea that that this doesn't go on forever and that there's something else and it's time to go. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean that in any kind of bad way. I just mean mm-hmm. right, right. I don't. I just think it's a the order of things that should be. But one of the things that medieval alchemists did was that they used in their work was they used astronomical signs as alchemical symbols. So in the early days of this alchemy work, when folks were were trying to figure out how to, their formulas, for example, they um, use fairly common signs, like, I don't know, the sign for Mercury, for example. Well, as they became hunted and persecuted, then they needed to invent secret symbols to protect and preserve their work. So as they were hunted and killed, or went into hiding, charlatans and imposters took over, extorting money from the common folk for remedies and promises of potent elixirs. So basically here we have the snake oil salesman coming along and taking over and not only doing terrible things to poor people who were hoping for some kind of cure or financial help, so bad things were happening, but it was also put a blight on the name of the true researchers who were trying to do this work. And then comes the age of reason. So in the 1700s, early scientists attempted to sort what they considered valid advances in chemistry or pharmacology or medicine from this quackery, what they termed magic. Hear how the word gets played here as something really negative? Mm -hmm. See what happens? Yep. And, And on one hand, I can appreciate and respect the work of the scientist who said, wait, 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 wait. There's some v- valid research going on here and we're learning some important things and they're getting some good things for people. And at the same time, there are these quacks over here doing this stuff and that magic stuff is weird and we need to separate these out. So when the age of reason tried to separate true science from magic science, the results of course were that true magic was discredited and shoved into darkness. And interestingly, at the turn of the 20th century, it was that psychologist who was not a hard scientist who brought alchemy to mind again. And we're back to Carl Jung. You want to talk about him a minute? Sure. Uh, First, I just want to say, I I can kind of understand why science went that way, because 
you had the charlatans and, and the snake oil salespeople like you mentioned, but if you look at some of the magicians we've researched on this show, look at John D, Queen Elizabeth's the first court astrologer who partnered up with his psychic friend and created the Enochian alphabet from channeling and magical spells. You know, he kind of went south too. Remember when the angels supposedly told him and his psychic partner that they had to swap wives? Alistair yeah. Crowley got addicted to heroin and did all sorts of weird stuff. I don't know. I mean, I can kind of understand where they're coming from. I, I don't can too. Yeah. It's sad. I wish that we could hold two truths inside our head at the same time, but I don't know. I don't know either, but yes, I, it is sad. Um, and that was, think about this. This was even in a time when there wasn't the mass media that we have today. So it probably took a while for that sorting of, of the positive folks doing real work and the charlatans doing their work probably took a while for that to sort itself out as it made its way across Europe. Yeah, that's very, very true. Okay, so back to Young. He was interested in alchemy for two main reasons. First, he wanted to learn if there were historic parallels to his own discoveries about humanity's unconscious psychic life. And the second reason was an attempt to understand a series of related dreams, one of which he wrote about in his autobiography, Memories, Dreams, and Reflections. He says, before I discovered alchemy, I had a series of dreams which dealt with the same theme. Beside my house stood another, that is to say another wing or annex, which was strange to me. Each time I would wonder in my dream why I did not know this house, although it had apparently always been there. The strange part of the house revealed its meaning finally. The unknown wing of the house was a part of my personality, an aspect of myself. Young said that this part of the dream was unconscious and would later prove to be representative of his interest in the study of medieval alchemy. And that's true. If you ever have a dream that you're in your house and you discover a room or a wing like Young did in your home and you're like, wait, I've lived here for 15, 20, 25 years. How could I not know this was here? I think we've all had that dream. It's pretty common. It means that there's something your unconscious is trying to tell me. And it means you know, girl, it's time to meditate, basically, because it means something's trying to come to your conscious mind. It's always a good thing. I, I have had those kind of dreams repeatedly over the years. Can I just stop and tell tell one of them? Because mm -hmm. I, I had one where I lived in a, uh, it was a whole different house, and it was an ivy-covered Tudor mansion. And there were, you know those statues, those famous little figurines of birds uh, made of like porcelain and bisque and things. And I pondered that dream over and over again for many years. But in another dream, I was in an old country farmhouse. That's what we would call a shotgun house in that you could see straight down a hallway from the front door to the back door. And there was a staircase going up on the side of the hallway. And in this dream, there is a box on a table in that hallway up against the staircase. And I walk in the front door and I walk over to the box and I look down in it and there is my wonderful Merlin, my Merlin the cat. It was horrible. It was a horrible dream. And it came several times. And it took me a long time to realize that what was happening in that dream was in fact that I had lost a part of myself, that that part of me 
that Jung talks about representative of his interest in the study of medieval alchemy. Well, I had lost my magic because I had lost my Merlin. Oh, interesting. Wow, that's deep. I think your your first dream is more positive, though. Oh, I felt it. Well, you you might feel that way, but you don't have my phobia of birds. Well, I was just going to say, you've had a lifelong fear of birds. And the fact that they were statues in that dream, I feel is your subconscious trying to tell you that you're you know, working on solidifying and facing this fear so that it's not a fluent living thing in your in your subconscious anymore. Well, I think that's probably true. And it, and it did, my fear of birds did lessen after that dream, but it was it was a very cold dream. It was very emotionless. That's all I know to describe it. But, but in any case, I think that Jung's comments about us finding parts of ourselves in new houses or in new wings of our house is absolutely a part of his alchemical discovery. I agree. He says he received more clarity about this need to research alchemy in another dream in 1926. And in this dream, he was being held captive in the 17th century. And he says, not until much later did I realize that the dream referred to alchemy, for that science reached its height in the 17th century. Young believed that alchemy was a symbolic representation of the individuation process. And he had two particularly astute comments about his work with alchemy. In one, he said, grounded in the natural philosophy of the Middle Ages, alchemy formed the bridge on the one hand into the past to Gnosticism and on the other into the future to the modern psychology of the unconscious. Wow. I never really thought about alchemy that way. That it's connect because Gnosticism does have a lot of magic in it, but it also has a lot of subconscious work. One of the one of my favorite quotes that Jesus said in one of the Gnostic Gospels is, "If you bring forth what is within you, what you bring forth will free you. If you do not bring forth what is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you." That sounds exactly like Jung's quotes about you know shadow work, where he says, "If you do not bring forth." what is uh, in your unconscious that will destroy you and you will call it fate. Absolutely. Yeah. He also said, only after I had familiarized myself with alchemy, did I realize that the unconscious is a process and that the psyche is transformed or developed by the relationship of the ego to the contents of the unconscious. Okay. Can we break that down? Yeah, I'm working on it. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> He says that the unconscious mind is a process rather than a thing, and that the psyche is transformed or developed even by its relationship to the ego and the contents of the unconscious. So basically, that part of us that is our psyche, that is that part of us that is that comprehensive body that holds our unconscious conscious and subconscious mind, our ego and our id, is created as a in connection to the ego and its relationship to the unconscious. Kind of reminds me of the show we did on the binary soul doctrine. What well, does, doesn't how it? we're always trying to reconcile these two sides of ourselves. Absolutely. Yeah. Interesting. All right, let's take a quick break. And then when we come back, we're going to talk about how alchemy transformed through Jung into how we're dealing with it and looking at it today. We'll be right back. This week's show is sponsored by Factor. 
Their delicious, ready-to-eat meals make eating better every day super easy. Wherever tomorrow takes you, be ready with pre-prepared, chef-crafted, and dietitian approved meals delivered right to your door. You'll have over 35 different options each week to choose from, including keto, calorie-smart, vegan, and more. Plus, they offer over 55 nutrition-packed add-ons that help make your weekly meal planning even more delicious. Factor offers two-minute meals, meaning you can fuel up fast with their restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever and wherever you are. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Plus, they're flexible for your schedule. You can get as much or as little as you need by choosing 6 to 18 meals per week, and you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. Head to factormeals.com psychic50 and use the code psychic50 to get 50% off your first box and two free wellness shots per box while your subscription is active. That's code psychic50 at factormeals.com psychic50 to get half off and two free wellness shots per box. And don't forget to check out our offerings at our websites for more learning and metaphysical fun. Go to debbowen.com to find her e-courses on topics ranging from crystals and tarot to moon magic. And check out samanthafay.com to find all my crystal bracelets which are made by hand and blessed with positive intentions. Plus, I have e-courses, guided meditations, and signed copies of my book, The Awake Dreamer. And we both offer monthly newsletters, which give you helpful tools, tips, and techniques for tuning into your intuition. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome back to the show. All right, Deb, do you want to talk about where how alchemy is being transformed since young into more modern times? Absolutely. So uh, Richard Conniff, uh, writing in the Smithsonian Magazine, reports that the topic of alchemy was so scorned for most of the 20th century that any academic who dared mention it was eyed as a, quote, lunatic. However, by the 1980s, the tide had finally turned and research was undertaken that examined the secretive but rich metaphoric language of the alchemist. According to Conniff and Smithsonian, he says that one example is, quote, a text that describes a cold dragon who creeps in and out of the caves. But that was code for saltpeter, which is really potassium nitrate, a crystalline substance found on cave walls that tastes cool to the tongue. I just love the poetry that he's describing here of alchemy. Isn't that lovely? It is. It really yeah. is. Uh, Lawrence uh, Principe, a chemist and science historian at Johns Hopkins uh, University, cobbled together obscure text and scraps of 17th century laboratory notebooks to reconstruct a recipe to grow a, quote, philosopher's tree from a seed of gold. Supposedly, this tree was a precursor to the more celebrated and elusive philosopher's stone, which would be able to transmute metal into gold. 
the use of gold to make more gold would have seemed entirely logical to alchemists, like using germs of wheat to grow an entire field of wheat. Principe mixed specially prepared mercury and gold into a buttery lump at the bottom of a flask. Then he buried the seal flask in a heated sand bath in a laboratory. One morning, he came into the lab to discover, to his, quote, utter disbelief, that the flask was filled with a glittering and fully formed tree of gold. The mixture of metals had grown upward into a structure resembling coral or the branching canopies of a tree minus the leaves. So in conducting this research, Prince P and other historians were able to determine that alchemists used sound experiment process and procedures and reported genuine results. As the study of alchemy, both historically and today, continues, we might better think of scientific change as an alchemical rather than a rapid process. So, so I think for me, as I was reading this and trying to process what was happening here, again, I don't understand the science of how that happened. I don't get that. Nor do I get why there was a mixture of gold and mercury. I don't know what that was about. But they, something grew somehow or another. This tree branch, this thing, sort of like a, an arm of coral grew. But over a period of time, it wasn't that it was instant. And I think one of the lessons for me, this is just Deb talking here, is that when we think of the alchemical process today, think of the patience and the time and the willingness to experiment and try so many things and trust processes over time, beginning back in this, you know, this in Egypt and many years ago, is so different than the way we are in the world today. We are so instant society that that the process of being patient and waiting and watching something in a flask grow from a heated sand bath to become something different is probably totally foreign to our way of thinking today. True. But if you apply that patience to what Jung was saying, it helps us to be kinder to ourselves. If it takes that long for the, for the subconscious, for example, to alchemize into our consciousness, then we need to be more patient with ourselves and the inner growth and healing we're trying to do. Absolutely true. Exactly. And for me, that's part of what so fascinates me and fascinated the scholars of the Middle Ages. I mean, you know, who wouldn't want, as we talked earlier, at least on a surface level, to own the Philosopher's Stone, the elixir of life? I, I'm not sure about that one, but but folks really would have wanted that. And particularly, you can think about that during the plagues. Who wouldn't have wanted that during the plagues? Right. But, you know, as Jung points out, alchemy is so much more than this turning metal into gold. It's so much more than creating some kind of an elixir. It's about that deep connection to ourselves and to other people. You know, Paul Coelho, I never can pronounce his name properly. Am I saying it right? Coelho, I think. Paulo Coelho, who wrote that brilliant little book called The Alchemist. It's a book that we used to ask our students to read. 
I still think everybody ought to read it. Here's what he writes about alchemy. We are travelers on a cosmic journey, stardust, swirling and dancing in the eddies and whirlpools of infinity. Life is eternal. We have stopped for a moment to encounter each other, to meet, to love, to share. This is a precious moment. It is a little parenthesis in eternity. It is unknowable that this true magic among us is what makes alchemy so alluring. It's that inability to know what is that makes this so fascinating to us, even today. And so perhaps like the quest for the Holy Grail, the search for the alchemical process is what really matters. The search matters. He wrote, and when you want something, all the universe conspires in helping you to achieve it. I love that too. And I think you and I are physical embodiments of proving that. I mean, we've been able to manifest beautiful, wonderful things in our lives. And I think we've been able to take the metal, you know, the the base idea of something we want to create and and turn it into, into gold. And applying this again to young. I think we can take the the metal of, say, a bad lesson or a difficult journey of, of our trek through this, this voyage called life and, and through time and patience and healing and reflection, turn it into gold. But, you know, I was listening to a podcast on aliens, you know, because that's what I like to do. And they had this guest on and he was kind of boring, to be honest. But I swear, every time you're drawn to listen to something, you should just see it through to the end because it means there's a little nugget of gold in there for you. And for some reason, I just kept feeling like I, I needed to hear this guy out. And he said something that was really interesting. He said, they asked him, you know, do you think we're going through disclosure? Do you think we're going to know the answers? Da, 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 da. And he said, I don't know. He said, I really think all of this stuff in this paranormal, supernatural world we're interested in, whether it's magic or alchemy or aliens or unsolved mysteries, he said, I, I think it's a gift from the universe. I think it's a Cohen. And I, I really thought about that. And he and the interviewer was like, what do you mean? And, and he said, well, you know, a Cohen is a, it's, it's a Zen Buddhist meditation practice. It's an unanswerable riddle that you're supposed to reflect on because it clears your mind. And he said, I think the universe gives us these, these Cohens, these things that we can't answer because it's in seeking the answer that we understand ourselves. I never really thought about all this big stuff you and I contemplate and discuss on this show as one big Cohen, have you? I've never used that phrase for it, but golly, is that not right? Yeah. I mean, alchemy and the Holy Grail and the Philosopher's Stone and magic and the elixir of life and, 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 and. Those unanswerable questions are what's so important to me in so many ways, is knowing that one day, uh, as Rilke said, I may live into the answers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but right now, I'm happy to blanket myself in the questions. Me too. Yeah. Me too, because they're fun. And, yeah. and contemplate. You know, sometimes just contemplation for the sake of contemplation is wonderful and fun for me. And that's kind of where I see us being, at least for a bit, on this journey through magic and alchemy, is that the contemplation is the journey. 
Exactly. The journey, the quest, the the mentors, the helpers, the friends, the the testers, the challengers that you meet all along the path. It's all part of it. I sure hope folks have enjoyed being on this journey with us through this alchemical discussion. Do you think of yourself as an alchemist? I'd like to. <laughs> no, really. Have you been able? Okay, I'm just going to put it all out there, Deb. Do you think you've been able to take shit that's been handed to you and turn it into gold? <laughs> I don't know about turning it into gold, but maybe, maybe silver. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do, Samantha. Uh, I yeah. do too. So I'm you're good. an alchemist. I'm an alchemist. Wouldn't you like to be an alchemist with us? We're all alchemists. Yeah, we've we've all turned just stuff into something so much more in our lives. And I think that's a that's a really good way of looking at it, Samantha. I do think that we can take gold and turn it back into metal though. And not not to be a little wah, wah part of as we wrap up the show, but I, I think it's important. If you recognize and honor and accept that you are magical, that you are a divine co-creator, and that you can too be an alchemist, you also have to accept that if you can alchemize things, you can alchemize them into a positive or a negative, which is why it is crucial that we maintain a vigilance about our interior world, our inner thoughts, our inner emotions, and our inner feelings about ourselves and how we're how we're looking at ourselves, talking about ourselves, treating ourselves. I think that's really important. I, I think to- it is too. And not going back into taking stuff. Although although some of those other metals are also important. Where where the alchemist of old thought of this hierarchy, some of those other metals are also important for us to have. So I, I think that they're pieces of the alchemical puzzle as well. And you know, one of the things that has that I have done consciously since the first of the year, is that I have sat in just silence. And and I don't mean just like, oh, I'm going to meditate now. I mean to just sit in silence and let whatever thoughts bubble up, bubble up, and know that there's a reason for them. And then I go in and, and jot them down. And I think it's that process of trusting that information that comes um, I've, I've heard that tone for so long now that I recognize it when it shows up. And that has been a big help to me in giving myself permission to just be, because I can be a to-do list queen, you know, and to just sit for a few minutes and just let things simmer in that Bain Marie, as we learned, you know, I think that's an important part for me is to just be with it for a bit. But you also said something important because so much of our societal thinking of meditation is clearing the mind, no mind, no thought. And that's really not what we talk about when we talk about being vigilant of your interior world. It is what you just said. It's sitting and allowing the thoughts to come. Right. Otherwise, they're going to have to pop through. You know, our subconscious is always trying to talk to us. And if it can't talk to us in meditation or when we're daydreaming and letting our mind wander, it's going to try and talk to us in our dreams. But if we're so stressed that we're suppressing our dream recall, well, how else is the subconscious going to talk to you? It's going to show up through bodily pains and aches. Right. So if you can listen to your subconscious right away through 
that interior pause in your day or night to meditate and just let those thoughts come, you're going to, you're going to start alchemizing. See what I did there a whole lot faster, <laughs> but yes. And, but <laughs> I don't know that faster is better. I think it's a process. No, you're right. Faster is not better. And I knew you're going to bite me when I said that word. What I meant was I'd rather get the message from my subconscious through meditation than through bodily aches and pains. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely true. Don't you think there are stages of how the brain tries to talk to us? I mean, our subconscious tries to talk to us? Oh, I do. And I think it tries in symbols and it tries in dreams and it tries- Coincidence. In and, and the more we ignore it, the louder it gets. Oh, absolutely. I, I still keep coming back to that. One of the funniest scenes ever in a movie was the scene where a Dumbledore gets the glasses of mead to knock the Dursleys on the head to get them to pay attention. And they won't do it. They just sit there with these glasses banging on their head. And and I think, you know, we do that a lot as people. We, we, you know, something's banging on our head and we're just pretending it's not there. And that doesn't get us anywhere or teach us anything. So I do think that our subconscious will continue to do that until we get it. Yeah, I agree. The universe is conspiring to help us, but we have to help back. Yes, we have to we have to listen and observe and be patient. That's right, Samantha. And then the and then the alchemy happens. Yes. Well, we hope you guys have enjoyed this show. We really have enjoyed talking about alchemy and magic and Carl Jung and chemistry. Oh my goodness, Deb, you you sure did plan a heavy show for us. Guys, we hope you have a great week and we hope that you are able to turn any lead thrown at you at work or in your own personal life, you can spin it right into gold. Have a great week. Please remember, as always, to be the light for yourself and others. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening to Psychic Teachers, your podcast for seekers, lightworkers, mystics, and magical thinkers. If you like the show, please tell a friend or leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcast. For more information, check out our Facebook page, Psychic Teachers, or our websites, samanthafay.com and debbowen.com. I have a new book out called The Awake Dreamer, Lucid Dreaming, Astral Travel, and Mastering the Dreamscape. You can find it wherever books are sold. Thanks for listening and have a great week. <laughs>